Hi, I'm Dr. Mila Brujic, and I'm joined today by Dr. Debbie Feinberg and Matt Rosner, where we're going to be talking all about the finer side of prisms on today's Optometric Insights show. Matt, Dr. Feinberg, welcome. Thank you guys so much for joining me. Um, this is an episode that I've really been looking forward to for a while. So Matt, if you could um, give a little background on yourself, and then Debbie, if you could give a little background on yourself, that'd be great for the audience. Yeah, so I, I'm from Michigan. I studied industrial design and, and organizational development in university, and uh, I came by the optometric industry through my family. I'm third generation in the optometric industry. I didn't necessarily plan on being in the industry, but did a lot of business consulting and ended up uh, working with my parents' clinic in Michigan. And now I am working and and helping lead the Institute uh, where we, well, you'll hear more about it. We'll talk about it in just a minute here. And I'll let my mom take it over. But that's exactly what happens. Once you get into optometry, you can never leave. You're you're, you're attached (laughs) to the hip by this profession for life now. Debbie, tell the audience a little bit about yourself. So I graduated from Illinois College of Optometry in 1983 and began practice with, me, with my father, who is now 90, 97 this September. He retired age 93. But uh, my world began to really change when my brother-in-law and ENT exposed me to motion sickness, disorientation in space through his own clumsy, klutzy world. And I'll tell you more about that. But I just practiced traditional optometry in the beginning with my dad. And then my trajectory changed around 1995. I was just about to ask you, so this is kind of where you just started kind of understanding all this and and share with us really the impetus on that, that starting on how everything kind of changed after that for you. Yeah. So we were double dating and my brother-in-law was holding up a loose prism that he was given at the university of Michigan by the chief of ophthalmology because he was getting eye strain and he's, we're sitting there and he's sitting in the back seat. And I said, what are you holding in your hand? He said, it's a prism. I said, what are you doing with it? He said, well, it's supposed to exercise my eyes. I said, well, maybe I can check your eyes. Maybe there's something going on that I could help you with. So examined his eyes, found some vertical misalignment, put some prism in his glasses, didn't think anything about it. And then time passed. I saw him every year. And then a longer period of time passed. And he gives me a call. He says, you need to see my dizzy patients. I said, what would I do with them? He said, you're going to help them the way you help me. I said, how would you know that I could do that? He said, well, I'm listening to them differently. And they sound just like I did before you helped me. They're not coordinated. They're motion sick. I said, I think you're going to help them. So I said, just send me two people. And it just evolved from my helping his patients who came in with sick bags and canes. And there I was, my dad never told me how long I could take for an eye exam. So I had that luxury of time. And I discovered with PRISM as I started working with it, that these patients had an eye misalignment. So I step back. I have a few questions for you. What type of physician was was this individual an eye care provider that you were working with that you helped, or were they another a facet of medicine? My brother-in-law is an ear, nose, and throat doctor. So he knew from dizzy people. And when he called me and he said, I need you to help my dizzy patients, it was because these were patients whose ears were fine. He'd look in the ears and there was no issue. 
but he listened to them differently and they were a bit off in space. They didn't like supermarkets. They were overwhelmed in certain spaces. And I had never heard any of this before. I'd never really met a dizzy person. So I said, just send me two people came in with sick bags and so on. And, and because my father always gave me the luxury of time, I never was in a hurry. I used my lab almost like my office, like a laboratory. I could figure things out. I could have my bench optician make certain lenses for me. And that really began my exploration to this field. And then Detroit Free Press uh, picked up a story about my work and we got flooded in six weeks with 168 patients. So, so okay. Debbie, let me, go, let me go back here just a little bit. When you're talking about vertical misalignment, is that what we would traditionally have talked about as a vertical foria? I mean, is that what we're, we're working with here when you kind of initially helped your brother-in-law at the time? Yes, it would be a vertical foria. And the, the, the difference between what we learned in school, which is we learned about different types of problems that would be accommodative insufficiency or convergence insufficiency, all these different terms. But I don't think we really ever learned how to use PRISM. If they had a large misalignment, that was not difficult. But it was those fractional increments that the test would tell me that there was nothing wrong. So I had to create ways in which I could identify their misalignment through other means, gait analysis, head tilt, um, you know, bending down and coming up and moving their head from side to side. There were certain clear-cut triggers. So what really developed was a questionnaire. From listening to these patients, we developed a 25-question questionnaire, which, by the way, just in January of 2021 got published for the first time in an otology journal. Congratulations. It's a journal not even for our, you know, traditional optometrists. It's really ENTs or specialized ENTs who do skull-based surgery for dizzy patients. So Debbie, you, you talked about the Detroit Free Press, which I'm well aware of. I grew up in Windsor, Ontario, right across the river from you. Some would even argue that it was south of you because that's the part of Canada that dips below the U.S. But um, when did that happen? And how many patients had you treated up to that point approximately? Up to that point, I had treated about 500. Wow. But it was over nine years. It was a, a stretched out period of time. And then I opened up my own office and determined to be just dedicating my work to this. And it was a medical reporter that came out, interviewed some of my patients, and actually went to some of their homes to do video. And long story short, she she wrote this beautiful article in the science pullout section. And when people saw it, in fact, there was one story about a patient who got nine copies of the free press to his front door from all the neighbors who knew he sounded just like this article. So it's, I call my patients silent sufferers. They look fine. They don't feel fine. And they keep going from doctor to doctor. You know, how many pounds of dizziness do you have? How many pounds of headache? They usually look fine. They just don't feel fine. So that was the, the beginning, the specialty of ENT referring to me. Then the next specialty was uh, physical medicine and rehab, traumatic brain injury. I did. I was so naive that I didn't even know what TBI meant. That's how naive I was to this whole world of now we hear about concussion all the time. But in those days, it was the patient who got in the car accident and tipped over with all the same symptoms. Again, headaches, dizziness, nausea, imbalance with walking. And what I found fascinating with them is they were almost easier to help than my ENT referrals because they had no compensation left. They just couldn't work it to make it better with their eye muscles. They just couldn't do it. 
So I was able to help them even uh, more expediently. So that's my journey. That's the early days. So Debbie, that's that's interesting. A few kind of follow-up questions here. So I know that there are patients that you probably help and you change their lives. And and I know that you probably have those people that you kind of hold on that pedestal. And like, this is like, this is what can happen when you um, understand these people, um, find these people and provide them the appropriate care in terms of the prism correction that are required. Are there any situations that maybe are more resilient to the treatment or the benefits of the treatment? And if so, what are some of those factors that play into that part that like this really isn't an individual that's a good candidate for this because of X, Y, Z? Right. So what I teach my colleagues when I teach them my work is I, t- I teach them, you're going to be a headache sorter and a dizzy sorter. So when they don't respond to PRISM, we have other questionnaires that we utilize. For example, they might have autonomic nervous system dysfunction or dysautonomia or POTS, lack of blood flow to the brain. That's what's making them dizzy. So we actually have a tool that's a questionnaire for that. Then they may have something called vestibular migraine. There's a questionnaire for that. And then we have something called canal dehiscence. Sometimes they have an inner ear hole from their head injury. So in 2016, I began identifying how to actually sort those inner ear patients. And now I've sent over 80 of them to a very specialized doctor who looks at the deep inner ear structure. So it's allowed me to sort them properly, peel off the layer that I can do or or not, and then send them on to the important referral. Oh, that's great. What And you said now you've kind of devoted 100% of your clinical care to working with these patients. Um, when did you make that decision where you're like, there's that much of a need that I know if I really want to do this kind of, I want to do this 100% of the time, this is really where I want to devote all of my time caring for patients. I would say the minute that free press piece, piece hit, I was all about the fact that, wow, my brother-in-law was right. Because he used to say, there's a lot of people out there, Debbie, you're going to have to take care of. And I said, really? I don't know. I don't know these people. He said, no, they're out there in huge numbers. So ENT knows know the dizzy patients who walk in that they don't know what to do with. Neurologists know about the dizzy person. What do you do with them? So it was really after that uh, Free Press article where I realized there were a lot of people out there. And kind of what year was that? Like what time frame wise? Where did that put you? Uh, what what point 2005. Okay. So for the last 15, 17 years, I mean, this is really kind of full everything that you've been devoting all your time to. Yes. And I have four colleagues in my practice. And then, you know, the decision to train others really came because patients were coming from around the country and around the world from overseas. And we had about 500 of them. And I finally said, you know what? I I was a young boy who came from uh, San Antonio, Texas on several Greyhound buses. And when he hit my door and I could take care of him, I said, this is great, but not so great. He should not have to travel for care. And that's when I decided to begin thinking about how to train this work so that I could, you know, personally train colleagues to do it. Absolutely fantastic. And actually, this is part one of a two-part series. In the next podcast, we're actually going to do a deeper dive into the actual training that you guys do with with doctors and just kind of take the audience through what that really would look like if somebody really said, yeah, I want to do this and I've 
heard enough about it. I've seen enough of um, the articles on this. I know that this is something that I want to do, but if I want to do it, I want to do this right. I want to do this correctly. And we're going to do a deep dive with you on that on the next episode. So guys, I, I want to thank you for sharing as much as you have. And, and I can't wait till, till the next episode where we start doing a deeper dive in the training institution. Thanks, Thanks so, much. so much. Appreciate it. Thank you both. And, and thank you all for joining us on this episode of the Metric Insights Show. Make sure you're subscribing. Make sure you're um, listening to future podcasts. And like I said, this is part one of a part two series where we're going to do a deeper dive into really the finer side of prisms. Mm-hmm.